0: Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we welcome Bob Storr, the CMO of Kangaroo. Across his career, Bob has held executive leadership positions at renowned brands such as the National Football League, Yahoo, and Sprint. Bob has also played a pivotal role in the growth and success of several startups, including Virgin Mobile, which went public in 2007. He's been the chief marketing officer for Virgin Mobile, Canary, iHeartRadio, and now Kangaroo. Bob is leading the smart home security startup's customer and subscriber growth. He brought smart home experience to his role at Kangaroo, having been the CMO and head of U.S. operations at Canary, a smart home security pioneer. Bob attended Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Communications. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Uh, It's great to be here, David. I always have to start kind of every interview right now with how are you dealing with the quarantine?
1: All things considered, which I, I think is what I always have to start everything with, everything is great. The team has been able to effectively decentralize and work together well. The irony of everything was that when I came to Kangaroo, I had just left another startup in the prop tech space, in part because we were all remote. And I really, really wanted to get back into an office environment. And that lasted about 30 days at Kangaroo before um, I was sent back home again. Yeah
0: an amazing way to start culturally, I think. In some ways, it forces the culture to change a little bit, but also to pull together. That's what we've found.
1: You know, you've got to find ways to have your water cooler moments with people. I think yeah. that's what you start to lose in all this. Things become very transactional and you don't get those nice little breaks where you can just catch up with someone. But the funny thing is I was just in the office A couple of days ago. And I met for the first time four marketing people on my team who've been with us for oh anywhere from a month to three months. And so that was a great experience. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. I I had a very
0: similar uh, experience. We hired some new people in January and I hadn't met them face to face. And I was in the office and one of them was in the office. And we get to go out and go next door and buy a cup of coffee and just sit down and actually have a conversation. And I said, yeah, this is what I look like without a Zoom filter. I look 10 years older. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so tell me a little bit about Kangaroo. Kangaroo is a really interesting prospect. You know, the home security category, it's very new, but it's very crowded with established some established players, at least from a financial standpoint. You've got some competition for money. Why was Kangaroo founded in the first place?
1: A little bit of context on the category. and. You're right. It has very quickly become a crowded space. And if you think about it, it was just five or six years ago when it was very much an ADT world. Right. Where you had this passive perimeter-based security that went up to a central monitoring station and police dispatch. With the entry of all the video-based products like Ring and Canary and Arlo and Nest, There were a couple changes. The most pronounced was that security became interactive. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden with access to your home at any given time, you know, some of these products almost became life management tools for people where they could keep their eyes on the pets. They know when the kids get home. So in some ways it transformed what security could mean to people. Now, all that said, we're still at only 30% of homes in the U.S. with a security solution in place. Right. And as you said, in some respects, like there's widespread awareness for these products. There's interest. And of course, most people want to protect their home. I think there have been a couple issues and I'll quickly get to why Kangaroo off those issues. Sure. Most of the new players in the space in some respects were working off of an artificial baseline. So what do I mean by that? Well, ADT... Is a $50 to $60 a month proposition.
0: Right. So
1: you have simply safe who comes in and says, okay, we've got a DIY solution that we can make $30 a month, right? And you've got a lot of the new video based products, but they're still expensive. And your, your first year of product and service is generally going to be in the three to five hundred dollar range. And so you've still got this big friction point of cost and then layer on top of that complexity. Now, complexity is part real and part perceived, but a lot of the DIY solutions that have come out have simplified it. I would think that, you know, unfortunately, they have also gotten caught up into the sort of macro umbrella of, smart home and i think that's hurt the category in some respects because people feel like oh i've got i want to get the nest or something else and but it's got to talk to my refrigerator and it's going to require all this work to install when that's not the case but anyway kangaroo really interesting you know my experience and how i got into kangaroo i just left canary and the founders of kangaroo tracked me down and they were contemplating building a security company and they wanted to get some perspective their initial thought was they wanted to do the AOL 2.0 model of security meaning they had value engineered these motion sensors and the packaging such that they could be shipped to doorsteps for pennies mm. and their approach or you know the way they were thinking about their approach is let's just drop these on doorsteps get into homes, graduate people up over time, and we can make all that work. Now, that's incredibly ambitious for a startup, right? You would want to have a lot of systems in place and ways to track all that and figure out if it can work. But the thing that got interesting to me very quickly was their ethos around, we know how to deliver products and services in a way that the category is not today and we're very much thinking about the value side of the equation and having been in the category i knew like that mass market was wide open and it was only a matter of time until you got the mass market in and and so you know i eventually jumped on board with them and you know we've had a very very good year and i think our thesis around the mass market and trying to knock down those big barriers of cost and complexity, you know, has proven true so far. We've got a lot of work to do, but it's been a really encouraging first year in the market.
0: You know, it it occurs to me, actually, given COVID, everybody's ordering, you know, porch pirating, given the economic climate and the fact that, You know, I wish I'd invested in a box company ten years ago. But uh, given all of the deliveries and all of those things, and, and really strangers walking up to your door, including the election, let's be honest. Yeah, it's really an interesting time to have this kind of brand. Talk a little bit about what opportunities that has brought to you guys.
1: So you're right. Again, what I would say happened in 2020 was destabilization of the population. Right. So COVID obviously plays a big role in that. Right. All the sort of political tremors, you've got protests, you've got a lot of things that introduced a fair amount of tension into the population. You know, and thankfully within the security space, we certainly weren't put on the sidelines by all of this stuff. And in fact, you know, there's a good argument to be made and data to back it up that all that stuff added to an acceleration Mm -hmm. in adoption of products like ours. Add to that the fact that anybody who was doing Installed security services like a Comcast or an ADT, well, they're out. And so that really shines the light on DIY solutions. It was a really interesting time for us because we're still a series A company. Right. And so when all of this first came along, you know, we were a couple months into our go-to-market effort and we were seeing really encouraging signs, but we had to weigh that against the uncertainty of. Well, how long does this last? What is it going to mean right. long term for the financial markets? Right. And so what was great about it for a couple of months is that, you know, we built up capabilities. We spent time really focusing on getting our cost to acquire our customer dialed in, standing up a couple of COVID-related programs, one around first responders, one around small businesses. And so we were able to do a slight pivot. And really get stronger as an organization across a couple of different areas and facets of the business now, your point about porch pirates right, so the other thing that is a byproduct of everything that 's gone on, particularly covid, is that online ordering has just shot through the roof right and of course, you know with that come your opportunists in the form of porch pirates and there's a lot of research out there, I think the company that has done the best job of following this is a company called c plus r Research, who ran a big study in two thousand and nineteen and then repeated it this past year. I would say the headline number that comes out of that is forty three percent of people in two thousand and twenty were the victim of a porch pirate Jeez. yeah, it's almost like the line about people who ride a motorcycle, and you probably do david so i, I <laughs> you you can argue with this, but someone once said to me there's two types of people that ride a motorcycle those have fallen. And those who will fall yeah and it's the same thing right with package theft there are people who've gotten their packages stolen and then it's only a matter of the time for the rest of us and and i will talk when when an appropriate time comes along about our doorbell camera and our our porch protection plan
0: before we get there because i think this is a good setup you know we think of a brand as basically a, a set of behaviors that are based organized around a belief system and that's based on bringing some kind of change to your customers or, or to the category. And you just talked about the notion of expanding the idea of security. And I, and I think, again, given the societal issues happening right now, the economic issues of just what I would just call uncertainty, which is almost a cliche at this point, that you know, these uncertain times, but it could not be more perfect for a security company. I'd love to hear your take on, on what actually security means because it's beyond tactical right now
1: if I was to take a step back and, and focus on brand, you know, and how we approach things generally, our big theme internally in the line that we use is take the fear out of security mm. for people mm-hmm. because there is trepidation around these products and, you know, how involved they are and like, how do I set this up? And if you look at the category, you know, the, the category spends a lot of time talking about peace of mind and product features and I don't think it's doing a service to all those people out there that are first-timers who want to step into the category, but you know, just need a little bit more hand-holding. And so what we've really focused on is creating a brand that is really approachable, really inclusive, and we sit at the top three pillars, simplicity, affordability, and security. Easy to say, and it really all comes down to, can you put that in practice? But we do put it in practice. And, And the really interesting thing, obviously, being at a startup is you can put it into practice in a 360 kind of way, right? So on the product side, we've got a $20 doorbell camera. In the packaging of that doorbell camera, it says, this is a doorbell camera. We've got a convention on all of our packaging that makes that really simplifies language. Um, we use primary colors. There are lots of cues in terms of how we present the brand that hopefully make it incredibly approachable and, and sort of knock down some of those barriers that I talked about earlier. Yeah, our job is like, stop making this thing intimidating and make it really simple. And, and in a lot of ways, we've seen that manifest itself in a customer base that looks entirely different than the category at large.
0: That's pretty fascinating. Talk about that a little bit. Who are you seeing?
1: So, if you were to ask someone, like, okay, who's the typical buyer of home security, right? Create a poster. Well, you would probably see someone that looks like me white male, white collar, lives in a suburban house. I don't live in a suburban house, by the way, but lives in a suburban house and makes a hundred thousand plus or more as a household, right? Those are the people that historically have been able to afford products like ADT and likewise with a lot of the new services that came into the market. Those have been the first adopters for us. Audience looks completely different. We are first and foremost, 50, 50 male and female. Our customers are generally sitting in this 30 to 45 year old age range. Our average household income is closer to 50,000, and we've got an incredibly diverse audience, right? And that, in some ways, matches right up to surveys that we were doing early in 2020 to understand not just like, is there a mass audience out there, but what does that audience of first-timers look like? Meaning, these are people that have real, real interest, have real awareness um, thankfully, don't have a lot of brand predisposition and want to get into the market. And so, you know that's the consumer that we're really catering towards.
0: you know it's really fascinating because I'm putting all of this together. It sounds like you're selling against frustration versus fear. You know th- there's a frustration, I think there's the the fear of not having a product like this. That's not what the kind of fear you're talking about. You're talking about the fear of. Trusting a product like this, <laughs> you know what I mean, and yeah, there's something very interesting about that,
1: yeah, and you know, having been in the, the category for a while now is at Canary before this, and if I was to rewind five years ago to your point about marketing on fear, you know it was clear that you had to create a reason for people to buy this, and that inevitably, even though I talked about like, oh great, this is a life management tool, look at all the different things that you can pay attention to with video-based products the fact of the matter was that you still had to sell on right don't be exposed if there's a break-in right and you had to explain to people like why they should have a camera inside their home right crazy concept why would i want a camera looking at me now yeah yeah now fast forward five years that's out of the way for a lot of people, right? And the demand is there. They have seen all over the internet, all these video clips and everything that can be captured and effectively dealt with when you've got this video evidence. And so, you know, for us at this point, we look at it as the hard work has been done. Yeah. We just need to like open the doors to people in the right way and give them something that doesn't feel intimidating as a product. Keep things really simply packaged in terms of kits. Our $20 doorbell camera, you know, we've been on TV with that, and the response is immediate. Yeah, it's hard to argue. It is. So long way of saying, yes, for us, taking the fear out of security is very much about just presenting it in a way and at a price that just makes sense to people.
0: You know, one of one of my
1: favorite tropes in the
0: category of security category, which is beyond just what you guys are doing, but the ADTs of the world—they always show, they always show a robber who looks kind of like the robbers in um, a Christmas story. Yeah, you know, like they look like uh, cartoon robbers out of Bullwinkle. They've got like the black mask and the they always have like a six o'clock shadow, and then they have like a black hat on. <laughs> you know?
1: Yes, yes, and Simply Safe does that. Yeah. And, they've made burglars look harmless. And, and- yeah. yeah, they could be defeated by you know, anything.
0: So you know, I, I've having worked with you before at Virgin, you're a very brave marketer. And one of the things that I would observe about you is you go into categories and you start throwing punches in a way that uses creativity. You don't throw punches in a way that is um, dirty. You go in and you out creative people with your messaging. And I, I'd love to know, you know, are you trying to disintermediate this category? already, you know, I mean, it's a new category, but it feels a little bit like Virgin. Like what you did with Virgin is you came in and said, Hey, here is a completely different way to look at having a phone.
1: Yeah. And there are a lot of similarities there, you know, Virgin, just to talk on that for a second, I think, you know, this goes back to 2003, you know, we came into the category with an entirely new concept to us consumers, which was this notion of prepaid And, you know, we had the Virgin brand, but we were going after 14 to 23-year-olds, right? At that time, only 30% of them, go figure, had a cell phone. Right. So incredible. Yeah. And so in a classic Virgin form as a challenger brand, you know, our focus was the big incumbents and contracts and family plans. And what our pitch to 14, 23-year-olds was to have your own phone, right? And so... But we also knew, just to put this in a little bit of perspective, our economics were completely different. Because when you get someone on a contract, you know you're gonna have them two, three, four, five years. So the big players are spending five hundred dollars to get a customer. And for us, you know, we could spend a hundred and fifty of that was a phone subsidy. Whereas with the big players, two hundred and fifty of it was the phone subsidy. So that meant we were dealing with candy bars and basic phones. (laughs) Yeah. And high airtime rates. And so we knew right out of the gates if we're going to win, we're going to win in the early days with the brand. And we are going to create a connection with that brand and with this notion of having independence with your phone that's going to resonate. And thankfully, you know, in some respects, we had MTV and we knew. If we went on MTV and we put the vast majority of our money there, we would look like we were bigger than we were. And yes, we did absolutely outlandish things. And what was really interesting about Virgin is we had this theme or our tagline was live without a plan. Right. But in some respects, you know, we were doing that with marketing we were thinking about ourselves as programmers and just say like every quarter we're going to figure out okay well what's the hook in terms of a product but we're going to wrap it in something completely different we're just going to walk away from what we did the, the quarter before and we're going to pop up a new campaign you know in some ways it's like what geico does right geico yeah. finds a great packaging for a singular thought right, right. and right. and we were doing the same thing and it was really resonating and so We had a couple different things that we had to do in terms of introducing a new product. But I think with Kangaroo, you know, we are doing things that are very similar in terms of counter-programming the category, not trying to look like the big guys and trying to disassociate ourselves from them. And look, like with our $20 doorbell camera, I'll give you one example. Like we were giving away a free cling that just sticks electromagnetic that goes right on top of the doorbell camera. And you could pick Biden or Trump, right? Yeah. If you pick our plan, right? take a free cling. And, and so we're just trying to, you know, it goes back to taking the fear out of security, like just disarm the category a little bit.
0: I think out of a lot of clients that I know and that I've worked with, you singularly understand the safety of risk.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's what I spend a lot of time on with creative teams. Yeah. Right? But it's almost like purposeful immaturity right? And let's keep it structured and let's keep it smart. But, you know, just given all my experience at startups, it's just like you win because you're distinctive. Somebody once told me, and it made sense in my entire career I was meeting with, and they said, do you know how you grow awareness and consideration for your brand? And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I should know this, shouldn't I? Um, (laughs) And he's like, well, it's spend and distinctiveness, Mm -hmm. right? And spend obviously, right? If you're a state farm, you know, you can spend your way into awareness and they're doing a better job by the way. But distinctiveness means that you are disproportionately registering with your consumer. And when you think about it, what are we really trying to do with advertising? We are trying to break the norms and the monotony of the day. Get, create a mini trauma for the consumer, right? right? So that your message sticks because right. there's so much going on. You've got to break some walls and you've got to do something that gets someone to go, wait a second, that's not like normal or that's not like going in and out for me. It got me to stop yeah. and it got to register. So yes, if you can figure out how to do purposeful disruption, I've spent my entire career trying to do that. Right. Yeah. With some success and I've had some misses, but you know, I think as long as you set it up so that you're able to sort of quickly churn through the work and you know what your foundation is, you can allow yourself some misses because the wins are going to be much higher reward. Yeah. Well, in fact, I think you
0: almost demand misses because that means you're pushing, it means that you're learning. It means you're pushing. And it means that you're, you're going to not make that same mistake again. And it's oftentimes, and I think to your point about awareness, as long as a mistake drives awareness and isn't, counterproductive, it actually can still drive awareness. Burger King's, I think, masterful at this. They're not everything they do. You know, the moldy whopper is there's every reason you would never do that. I think that's a controversial idea about whether it worked or not. But if you look at the numbers, it worked. That did work.
1: Yeah. And, and this conversation and where I've gotten asked a lot of questions is like, it gets too focused on just the advertising. What I tend to advise people who are like, well, how do I even do this? I've got 12 people that have to look at this. It's going to get watered down by the time it gets, you know, I say, don't focus on the big things, make those other ordinary things. Extraordinary. Right. Think about what, what Virgin Atlantic did to the safety video years ago. and now look at every safety video on an airplane. They said, okay, we're going to sort of break the mold here. So my guidance tends to be find something right that typically most companies will just look at and it's just like all right we just have to do what everybody else does here. It right. could be self-help videos that are on your website like how do I take these help videos and just add a little bit extra creativity or do something that's memorable and potentially shareable with those videos. Yeah. Find parts of your marketing mix or the customer experience that nobody's going to get all that focused on if you start to push it a little bit and get some little wins and then you're going to have the credibility and the clout to start to yeah take that up
0: what's one of my favorite things to do on any brand is to just look at the category and see what everyone accepts as you you must do and turn them on their heads you know just jujitsu them exactly it's a great thing to do so you you just segued i think beautifully into one of the things that i love about really great branding and it is how a brand drives an organization because it is not just advertising and i think any cmo who thinks their brand is just about the advertising and the look and feel is missing a whole world of possibility because it can drive your company it can drive your people it can drive your culture and ultimately all of that drives retention profitability all sorts of things and i'd love to know how are you using the kangaroo brand as a motivator internally or do you like does it drive the kind of people you hire and what you're doing and how you're doing it and All of those sort of myriad of of functions.
1: Think about this, right, in terms of the point you're raising and all the different ways that customers can interact with a brand today. If you were to go back, I'll go back to the Virgin days, right? And most advertisers, most brands could say, look, we've got this great theater and it's called television. And that cast such a wide net and was so influential That all the other stuff, right, drops way down in terms of priorities because you can define, and this is going back 20 years ago, what people should think. Can't do that anymore. Right. Because things have gotten so fractured in terms of the ways that people find you as a brand, the value of, you know, your consumers in terms of word of mouth. And so what I like to say is that every touch point, you have to place a premium on it and know that you know, that that's both an opportunity to really get someone to create a a little memorable experience for somebody, or it's also an opportunity to lose a potential customer. And, you know, to your question about like, well, how does brand permeate the organization? I think, you know, the thing I obviously love about startups is you're building something for the most part from the ground up and that you also have a small enough organization That if you are a good communicator, right, you can get the whole team on board, and then and then life gets easy because they're starting to operationalize things without you know you even having to talk about them. So right, well, just it just is. We have built you know your point in terms of the people we hire. I mean, we I think I'm the only person in the organization with any security experience. So you know we are pulling from lots of different places and getting lots of different perspectives into the organization Um, and we're trying to build a really diverse culture in terms of the makeup of the team because we know that we weigh in under index going back to you know the category customer we weigh under index on caucasian um, you know within our customer base and And so I think the important thing is that you're bringing in people who understand a diversifying marketplace, you know, particularly for us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. Our statement at Baldwin and is give a damn. Mm -hmm. It's such a grounding principle, you know, it's a grounding principle on every level. It's like, give a damn about what's in front of you. Give a damn about the people around you. Give a damn about the customers that we're talking to. Give a damn about your clients, like, it's a way of conducting a review, like an employer review. You know, it just creates, I think, a bar that's been very, really great for us because it's just alive in the company,
1: right? And think about this, you know, to your point about give a damn and the little moment, make the little moments matter. The the yeah. very extraordinary, you know, more and more you're you're bringing creative people in house, right? And. There's a lot of creative people out there that just want to build portfolios and like want something they can hold up. And the fact of the matter is, like, a lot of work does, like, online advertising work does become very quickly disposable. But if you can empower those people to take things other than just your advertising and go make them really special, they're going to thrive because yeah. they're going to start to create things that are portfolioable. And all of a sudden, they're going to know that. Not only is it an expectation, but that they have the flexibility and the freedom to to sort of really turn little things into big things.
0: It is my one piece of advice to any client who wants to bring creative in-house. You must understand who creative people are and what they're motivated by. They want wins and they want to do great work and they want to be told at a boy, at a girl, good job, by the industry and by their by their people. And they're not that's hard to understand for some people. I've always found you to be a huge Supporter, fan,
1: and holder to accountability of creative people. To me, that creative brand—those are the things that set you apart, right? And I mean, we don't have to talk about the fact that just like how data-driven marketing is today, and you know, just the the things that are going on are eroding a focus on good creative work and great let everybody else go over there and like do that. You know, that's going to give us a bigger advantage in the market if we're really successful. I mean, I'll go back to my day two at Kangaroo. This was probably one of the bigger risks I've ever taken in my career. CES was going on. I will say, fortunately, I was not there because I had a non-compete. I couldn't start until CES had only one or two days left. But this story pops up about spectrum discontinuing its security service, right? So a lot of the, a lot of the cable providers have a security service makes sense, right? Added to the bill. Well, spectrums was this old legacy time Warner service. And so they announced, you know, we're going to discontinue it and, and effectively make the service shut the service off. So their customers products were useless. Okay, fine. You made that decision. Right. And you know, it was probably a necessary decision, but The problem was, is that Spectrum didn't do anything for the customers. Not like, hey, we're going to take something your right? They just said, well, we we told people. Yeah, sorry, we're done. Yeah, yeah. And so this starts to get some traction in the media. And so literally my day two, one of the founders sends me and said, we should do something with this. I'm like, okay, great. I know how to do this stuff. The output of that was we took the Spectrum logo, uh, same font, and we turned it into rectum. And we put it on the side of one of their trucks in an ad. And we ran the ad in the New York Post. um, So it was real. And, you know, it's just the van with rectum in their font. And (laughs) it says, what else would you call a security company that would leave its customers high and dry? And we put our own offer in there. And we ran it online. And it got, as you might expect, because, you know, it was a little bit of an easy win. Yeah online because, okay, everybody will trans the cable companies, but it went so viral online that out of nowhere, we had this massive retargeting base to go work with, yeah. right? We yeah. go from somebody that's like, okay, we're trying to figure out stuff. Now we got people that have had an experience with the brand. Yeah. And yes, some of them just appreciate sophomore humor, <laughs> but nonetheless, we've registered with people. Hardest sophomoric humor ever though. I mean, there's nothing
0: sophomoric about about the intent and, and what you did.
1: And that became our first springboard. We were going then. And we put a kit together, we put a special offer, we got a good review from CNET, and a few things lined up, and all of a sudden, you know, we were doing easily ten to fifteen X, you know, what we were doing before we ran that ad. Yeah. Of course, all of that lasted for about thirty six hours before <laughs> yeah. We got our cease and desist. Yeah. But one funny story about the cease and desist, I think Spectrum thought we were nuts. Yeah. And so when we get the cease and desist letter, right, we see the envelope, we go, okay, here it is, you know, we're done. And instead of it just saying like, cut that shit out or we're going to- We'll crush you. We will crush you. It was the most thoughtfully written letter that was in part telling us to stop and in part- justifying why they made the decision and it sort of kept going back and forth because I think they thought, all right, they're just going to post this online now and this isn't going to end. And so, you know, we virtually shook hands and we moved on, but you know, I think just going back to creative and, um, it's a huge win. Yeah, it was a huge win. You have
0: in your bio that you attended Syracuse and I know you attended NYU as well. And the Newhouse school is a, is a creative school. No.
1: Yeah. So Newhouse is a communication school, um, right? So it's broadcast journalism, advertising. It's got a lot. I mean, obviously it's also a pretty famous and well-known communication school. There's like very people that have come out of there. Did you want to be a creative person when you were in college? Did you want to be a writer or an art director, a designer? So this is what I knew, David. And remember, we're going back a little ways now. (laughs) I'm a kid who grew up on the beach, who drove a tow truck in the summer, you know, for his dad yeah, and watch Gilligan's Island. And so, okay, I'm going to eliminate wanting to be a lifelong tow truck driver. I think my dad intentionally motivated me by like making me work at a gas station all my teen years, instead of being a lifeguard, made sure I went to college. But, um, I would look at Gil Island and I said, that looks interesting, right? That's the most relevant point of reference I can come up with at this point, because I can't go on any internet and look around and I yeah. live on a beach. Yeah, And so I wanted to make things. I knew that. And Syracuse has an incredible communication school, hands-on. But you know, while I was there, I would say the biggest and most defining moment for me was in the spring semester of my freshman year, as we were approaching finals, I just gathered up my, some of my floor mates had a great floor. And we said like, we have to do something about finals. And I have this idea. I want people to yell out the window from 10 to ten fifteen. And we called this thing screen team. We had flyers as any good startup we do. We started with my dorm and the right. dorm next to us instead of trying to go campus wide. Well, it worked great, right? So next semester, we go, we're going campus-wide with this. Because you had amps out the window. You have people out wow. right? Yeah. And next semester we go campus-wide and I call the local Syracuse affiliates and newspapers. They come up to campus and it's incredible, right? It is visceral. And within two days I was in the disciplinary committee <laughs> or a disciplinary committee meeting because the city of Syracuse that night got more 911 calls than it had ever gotten. But like that moment when you can get somebody to do some, you know, all these people to do something in unison, and then you've got that emotional layer on top of it, right? That to me was just like, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. You know, it was crystal clear. So the Syracuse University screen team uh, was really what jettisoned me into my career. And you realize
0: that that's exactly the blueprint for how you launched Kangaroo.
1: How you did the rectum idea. It's literally the same. Yes. yes. And and in some ways, when I get to some of these startups, part of my role is to bring stability. And yeah. um, so doing that two days in, right, and, and was a little terrifying for me. And the, and the funny thing about the ad, we put it in New York Post. And when you think about it, like Spectrum is probably the New York Post's biggest Huge. advertiser. yeah. And we think like, this thing's never going to get through. Yeah. I'm surprised they approved it. Well, we intentionally submitted it, the ad. Right at the deadline, um, mm-hmm. and it did make its way into the paper. And somebody must have caught it on the printing line because it was supposed to be in the sports section, and they tried to bury it in the gutter, which was probably the worst decision, right? Because it still runs. Now you got two people who are mad. You got yeah. Spectrum's mad, and you got us who's mad. <laughs> but yeah, it 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 did. It was a a little bit of a scream right out of the gates. Here we are.
0: It seems like you very savvily gamed the post a little bit by holding off delivery. Is that correct? Oh,
1: why, why would I uh, deceive anybody? But um, we waited until the very last minute we could to deliver the ad. I don't think we, it's deceptive. I think it's a smart
0: thing to do with Risky Creative.
1: Yeah, yeah, are right. A
0: very, very smart thing to do because the, the, the sooner you deliver that, the more people are going to see it. One of the first things I ever did when I, I wanted to start an agency back in like 1987, a long time ago, and we did an ad and the New York Times wouldn't run it, and um, I had never heard of that before, you know, as a as a 24 year old or 25 year old, whatever I was, was really young, and um, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, they don't run things, you know. I've since learned, of course, there are standards and practices, and you can't say
1: certain things and all that. I had no idea. And look, in 1987, when they say they're not going to run it, there's not much you can do, right? Well, obviously really good marketers have figured yeah. out, you know, how to purposefully send along some creative that won't yeah. get run and yeah. then send the risky thing yeah, and then and send then the how real thing. To really smartly leverage that. <laughs> That's actually <laughs> risky. All
0: right. One last thing. So I'm a home bartender. <laughs> I, uh, you know, if you look at my Instagram, it's full of, of cocktails. And so I, I like to ask this question cause I think it forces a metaphor, but if kangaroo was
1: a cocktail, what cocktail would it be? I think we would be, we're not a light beer, but we're a beer yeah. and we're a classic beer. So, you know, we're Budweiser. Our customers are blue collar. Um, you know, we talk a lot internally about the fact that, yeah. you know, we are Miller beer, not craft beer. Right. And as, as an orienting mechanism, just to get people, you know, we've obviously got a lot of enlightened millennials working for us and we've got to move them off of that. And we talk about the fact that we're more cable than we are Netflix. and And so... Yeah, I don't think we're a cocktail. I think we're a beer. And again, brand driving culture,
0: full circle. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. Bob, thank you so much for being here. Um, I really appreciate your insight and it's just always great to connect.
1: No, it's always great to connect with you, David. You're super smart and I love that you're, you're doing this and reaching out to people. Awesome, thanks, man. You got it. This has been
0: another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, Bob Storer. Today's show has been brought to you by Pony Source Brewing, always fresh off the beer tree. Pony Source Brewing, drink about it. If you're digging the show, please give us a review and a like. It really does make a difference. Production helped by Nathan Nichols, editing by Sarah Voorhees Wendell, executive production by Alexa Tessoriero, and music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood Baldwin Ann.